Hey everybody, this week we thought we'd try something a little bit different. We have your first ever live episode of Hodinkee Radio. We recorded this at the UTA Artist Space in Beverly Hills during the Hodinkee pop-up. We had a number of Hodinkee team members out in LA for a full week, including a pop-up shop, a lounge space, some events, and what you're about to hear was recorded there in front of a live audience. Before we get into it, I just want to say thank you on behalf of the entire Hodinkee team to everybody who came out to see us at the UTA Artist Space. It was an incredible week, we had so much fun meeting everybody, and we can't wait to see you again soon. On a brisk Saturday morning, we had over 100 people come out for an amazing Cars and Coffee with dozens of incredible cars. One of the people was Spike Ferriston, who, in addition to being a noted car guy, actually hosts his very own car podcast, Spike's Car Radio, which you should definitely be listening to. Spike's also a legend in the comedy world, where he's written for Saturday Night Live, The Late Show with David Letterman, and, of course, Seinfeld. He sat down with us to talk about everything from his start in comedy, to the origins of the soup Nazi, to how he pairs cars and watches, two of his greatest passions. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin, and this is a special live edition of Hodinkee Radio. This week's episode is brought to you by Tudor. Stay tuned later in the show for a look at the Black Bay Bronze, a dive watch inspired by true naval engineering. You can also learn more at TudorWatch.com. All right. Thanks, everybody, for coming out on a Saturday morning to the first ever live episode of Hodinkee Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin, and we have a pretty great panel of people here. Uh, how about I let everybody introduce themselves today? Let's start with my left. Okay, my name is Ben Clymer. I'm the, the founder of Hodinkee, and I am very happy to be here in sunny Los Angeles. It's, uh, it's been yeah. a good run so far. I am Ben Clymer's friend, Spike <laughs> Ferriston. And uh, I'm going to be honest with you, I know more about those contraptions over there than I know about these ones. But I'm a fan. I'm a fan of these guys. I love Ben and I love Hodinky. It's nice to see you all. And I'm James Stacy, senior writer with Hodinky, and I just got off an airplane, so mm. <laughs> First stop. he's into this. <clears throat> All right, I, I figured we'd get started with kind of how Spike became a part of the Hodinkee family, which you have been a part of for a while now. Uh, when did you guys first meet Ben and Spike? So I, I think that the first time I, I really noticed Spike was on Instagram, because Instagram is everything, and I think you had tagged us in a, in a photo of either your or, or Jerry's Octavia, and you tagged Hodinkee, and I was like, oh, Spike. And then I think through a mutual friend, a legend in his own right, Ted Gashu, we were connected. Right, right, right. Everything comes back to Ted Gashu in some way. Everything always comes back to Ted Gashu. He is going to love that, that his name just came up in the first 60 seconds There's no question about of this that. podcast. I, I came across Ben when I, first of all, I, I saw the word Hodinky and I didn't know what the hell I was looking at. And uh, then saw, uh, you know, here's a guy in New York posting beautiful pictures about watches and writing about them. And I was first taken in by the writing on the site and how smart it was and how beautiful the photography was. And uh, boy, it, it touches my heart that I'm part of another family. Look at that. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, you know, where, where were we bonding over cars though? When did we first meet, you and I? That's a really good question. I mean, obviously we did talking watches at the hangar. Right, uh, that's it. Yeah. No, that's it. You're exactly right. Yep. Ben invited me on to Talking Watches. I was terrified because, frankly, I don't really know how to talk watches. But, um, you know, I, he, I very quickly became his Porsche guy, and he became my watch guy. He's the guy I was able to call and go, hey, should I buy this? And he'd go, please don't. <clears throat> so important you're, to have a guy. You're going to lose a lot of money if you do, or they're charging twice. So, uh, you know, you're, you're my watch uh, matchmaker. We, we, we try, for sure. We're do, doing, the, doing the Lord's work, as we yeah, say. Yeah, and it was so much fun. I mean, I, I make a lot of appearances. At the time, I was doing a lot. And uh, Talking Watches is up there with Bill Maher, as far as the feedback I get from people. Is that true? And that, and that sets aside Colbert, the Today Show. I don't know what it is, but your, that piece of video, I'm constantly tapped on the shoulder. And, and it's, a, it's really a testament to what you guys have built that people are paying attention 
and then somehow want to talk to me because of it. I mean, it's really impressive. Thank you. I mean, it, it's a testament, obviously, to, to not only our own team, but all, all of you guys and all the readers that are so, so in love with kind of the, the type of content that we create, the watches, the product, everything about it. So, so thank you. That, that's actually incredible to hear. Um, but yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that episode started off with you talking about the, the very first watch you bought. Can you tell us about that watch and kind of how, how that kind of sent you off the deep end? Yeah, that, okay, well, I was writing for David Letterman, and um, at the time, I had a very nice setup. I lived on the Upper West Side, and I could walk to work, and I would walk to the Ed Sullivan Theater and then walk home, and I was able to kind of get a lot of writing done in my head, and every day, I passed this little jewelry store that had a Tag Heuer in the window. And I would see it, and I would look at it, and I would stop to look at it. And as the weeks went by, I would stop and wait a little longer, and then look. And then I thought, at some point, I looked down at my wrist, and I had a swatch on. And I thought, well, why don't I just buy that watch and put it there? And I had, you know, I'm a single person living in New York, and I was making a little bit of money. I had nothing to spend my money on. And I bought this Tag Heuer 2000 series chronograph, which is super tiny by today's standards. It's the littlest thing. But... I don't know what the attraction was. I had never, I didn't grow up around watches, but it just, it called to me, it spoke to me, and it said, buy me. And that, that was my first and only watch for a very long time. I don't know if you got caught up in any of that swatch madness that was going on at the time. That was a little bit before my time. Do you remember that? I, yeah, I know of it. It was like the Beanie Baby craze. Like, you just buy these swatches, and they are going to go up uh, faster and higher than Philip Morris stock. Just don't worry about it. Just start buying them. And all of the shops in Times Square had these rare swatches out there, the Mother's Day edition, the, uh, the art editions that they did, and they just went nowhere for the longest time. They ended up being worth absolutely nothing. So I, I, I think that might have been going on at the same time. Again, I don't know why I wanted to collect that stuff, but, but it was some, something in my DNA that just said, buy these things. Well, you ended up from there actually buying more Hoyers, right? You ended up becoming kind of a Hoyer guy. Yeah, that's, that's probably my favorite brand. I, I was telling somebody outside I was chatting with that it, it was uh, out here that I heard the phrase pre-tag Hoyer and had no idea what that meant. And they told me about this life before Tag bought the company. And that started me looking on eBay. And, you know, they were in a world that I was already familiar with, which is racing in the 60s and 70s. And I, you know, started seeing these photographs of, you know, Steve McQueen's and, and Paul Newman's and going, well, I, I like that. And, 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 and again, it's, there's a chemistry, I think, that goes on when you're, at the time, I was working seven days a week on Seinfeld. So I'm there, I'm just living in the office with a bunch of people and it's, you just spend your life there. So whenever you had a break, you were kind of hunting and looking for stuff and that was cars and or watches. So uh, the first watch I bought was this 1960s Tonneau Hoyer, right? A very shiny, chromey uh, bit of business with a, with a bracelet, not unlike this Rolex bracelet which I still have, and I, and I was looking at it this morning, gray dial with two white subdials on it. And I don't know, just, I, I put it on, it would make me happy. And somehow it would get me through my days uh, at working there, you know, 12 to 14 hours, and that just became this little, unexplainable little thing that I was doing, you know, and, and I started uh, putting them together as a little collection, but still not quite knowing why. You know, real crow behavior, I call it. You know, you see a shiny thing like a crow, and you just, you gotta grab it. And we, we definitely want to talk about your time with, with Seinfeld, of course, but I think before that, how did you get into comedy, and then how did you transition from Letterman to then SNL, right, and then, uh, and then to Seinfeld? It's all a fluke. It's all just a mad fluke when I look back. It makes, none of it makes any sense. I was bartending in Boston at Legal Seafoods, shucking oysters. <laughs> That's you know, the traditional route into comedy writing. And uh, very obsessed with David Letterman's early show. Um, in fact, it was the only show on television that really had the type of humor that I responded to. I don't know if you guys remember the show when it first started, but it, he, he once did an act one where instead of doing a comedy piece, it was all about drilling a hole in the desk and running the wire through it. And he did 20 minutes of just getting the drill and the stage hand. And I was sitting there after a couple bong hits, I know my son is over there, but what, going, I can't believe this is like nothing I've ever seen in my life. And, and you know, then, then they had pieces like, um, 
I remember they did, did a piece where uh, Paul was like, I wonder what life in the United States would be like without the Constitution. And Dave said, geez, I wonder. And then they glissed. <laughs> and Dave and Paul were tied to a stake and a giant rat in a purple gown was whipping them just for like 30 <laughs> seconds. And then it glissed back out. And again, I went, well, I've got to go work for this show. I, there's nothing on television like it. So, you know, how do you get from a bartender who's in music school to study uh, scoring? I thought I was going to write jingles, elevator music. That's about as high as I was thinking at the time. <laughs> and uh, this young woman walked in wearing the Letterman varsity jacket one day, just moved from New York, and uh, she was our new hostess. And I, said, I just left behind the bar. I said, where did you get that jacket? And she goes, hi, <laughs> nice to meet you. My name's Evelyn. And I said, I need to know where the jacket came from. She goes, I'm dating or was dating the graphic guy for Saturday Night Live and David Letterman. And I said, can you get me an internship? And she said, yes, this, he happens to still be in love with me and will do whatever I want him to do. And I will arrange that for you. <laughs> and what do you do? <laughs> and that was that little moment is where it all begins because she then called up her friend and before I knew it I was flying on an airline called this is a, a crazy schedule I was commuting in from Boston to work on these shows but Big Apple Air had a $29 student rate so I would fly on Wednesday mornings sleep on a friend's in Brooklyn's floor for the week from Wednesday to Saturday and then after the party of Saturday Night Live at 3 in the morning I would go to the train station and come back. And then I would sleep for the rest of Sunday and do double shifts, bartending Monday and Tuesday. And, uh, you know, put school on pause. And that, that was the beginning of my entrance into show business. Do you, do you still keep in touch with Evelyn? Everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The whole, she ended up, uh, she actually did really well. She's, you know, I'm going to space the guy's name, but um, hmm, who's the Glenn Gary Glenn Ross writer? Somebody in this room has to know that. Huh? David Mamet. She ended up working with David Mamet. And, uh, That's great pretty much until about five years ago. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting little moment, isn't it, that you look. There, there are a few of them like that. At the end of that first year, as I was leaving at 3 in the morning for the last show uh, of Saturday Night Live season, as an intern, unpaid, you know, I was going back to Boston and back to school. And uh, that was the end of it. And as I was walking out, I remembered, oh, you know what, I haven't said goodbye to the photograph graphics guy, a different guy who I'd been working with. And I went back in, and he was shit-faced. He was at the egg bar, just almost, you know, fa falling over. His name was uh, Ed. And I said, uh, can I, uh, I just want to thank you for everything. This has been the time, I can't believe everything I've witnessed. I grew up watching this show. It was amazing. He goes, he goes, come back, come back and do an internship for Letterman. I said, really? He goes, yeah. So I went back to Boston and I sold everything. I informed my parents I would not be attending the last year of Berkeley College of Music. And then I called Ed up and I said, Ed, I, I want to do this. I want to take you up on your offer. And he went, what offer? He had been in a blackout drunk at the egg, at the egg <laughs> station. And I said, the offer, you said I could do an internship. He goes, I did? He goes, well, I'm not sure about that. And I go, well, you... What you said, I just cleared up my slate and I just sold everything. I sold my motorcycle. I didn't have much. I had an amp, a guitar, a motorcycle, and a couple of things. And he goes, all right, let me look into it. And he felt guilty and he set me up with the internship on Letterman and that was the beginning. From there, I interned on Letterman. Then I started writing, uh, I was a receptionist for SNL and then I started writing for Dennis Miller even though he didn't want me to and, and now I'm here. You know, that's how it worked. But it's an incredible little string of events, you know. I mean, what's it like, I mean, you, you left music school and you didn't go write for some like third tier show and kind of work your way up and develop that way. You like, you jumped to the big time immediately. What, what kind of learning experience is that? If, if you consider getting Bud Talls and McDonald's cheeseburgers the big time for the, for the <laughs> graphics department, that was my job for about a year. I, I really was, you know, I, I interned for Dave for about three weeks. I could not have been happier, but I was two weeks away from being kicked out of the city. I mean, I had no money to pay for the apartment that I was staying in. And as, as SNL offered me this job as the receptionist, and I turned it down. I said, I really, you know, between you and me, I like Letterman better. I don't want to do that. And the Letterman people were smart enough to fire me after that and tell me, you've got to, <laughs> these jobs don't come around often, you're fired, go take, or, you know, do whatever you want, but we suggest you take the job. And it was sitting there answering phones, um, 
right in front of Dennis's office that I saw this opportunity. You know, I saw mm, these comedy writers make good money. I, I've watched a lot of TV growing up. I, I think I can do this job. And I started writing jokes for Dennis and he's, he's looking at stuff going, eh, maybe this, maybe not that. And, and I think that first season I only got one joke on, but that joke hit like, I would imagine, a hit a crack hits somebody who's never done it before. <laughs> it was just like, boom. And I went, well, this is, this is what I want to do. This is perfect. I love it. Was it a weekend update uh, joke? It was a joke, and it's funny. His name's in the news these days. It was an, a joke about Oliver North and, oh. and about uh, the Iran-Contra affair. And, it, and somehow it involved Disney dollars, which they were being introduced at Disneyland. I have no <laughs> idea what the joke is. I just did Dennis's show last week, and we were trying to remember the joke, but it's impossible. But it was just the idea that that an idiot like me from a small town in Massachusetts could write something and then it would come across on this TV screen, right? And, it, and, uh, and then you'd hear the audience laugh. It was irresistible. Who was on the show at the time? Who were the other writers? Like, who were you working Bill Hartman, <laughs> Kevin Nealon, Dana Carvey, uh, Vicki Jackson. Ben Stiller was the new writer who did not work out, who wanted <laughs> off the show. Uh, you know, Conan O'Brien, um, we had, uh, it was a great crew, Al Franken, wow. <laughs> now Senator Al Franken, <laughs> and Davis was still around back then. There were, uh, I remember my most proud moment as a receptionist is when they, uh, security was taking Davis's desk to give him a new desk, and I said, uh, you better let me have a look at that, and I opened the drawer and pulled out the drugs, and I said, okay, you can take it now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was uh, Bob Odenkirk, was a new writer wow. who was just brought on that year. Um, you know, it was a great group and, and a really fun group. And, you know, because I was answering phones, I didn't really deal with any of the backstabbing or the craziness that was going on. But, you know, I had grown up watching this show. So, you know, to me, it was just like, wow, look at what is happening here. And by the way, New York City, the same thing, too. I'd never been in New York City before. Were there any specific writers that, from that list that stand out as your earliest kind of mentors in the space? Um, not mentors, but a guy named Eddie Gordetsky, was, uh, who runs Mom right now. That's his show on CBS. He's a guy who took the time to read my stuff and, you know, critique it and give me some honest feedback about it. And, uh, and really, you know, Dennis and Herb Sargent and, uh, you know, Kevin, everybody was just really supportive. G.E. Smith, who was running the band, used to tune my guitar. You know, he'd go, hey, bring your guitar and I'll take care of it and fix it. You know, it was really a wonderful experience. Do you think that comes from it being mostly a trial and error space? Everybody's been hit a few times, everybody's had a few wins, and it's a shared thing? Oh, where? An SNL? Uh, in, a, in a writer's room in general. Uh, well, I wasn't in that writer's room. No, writer's room can be kind of vicious at times. It really is, it trickles down from the top, always. So you, you, whoever's really in charge, that's the kind of, uh, that's the, the atmosphere you're going to be in. And SNL was a very funny... Uh, Lauren, you know, is a, is, a, is a nice guy. He's a very easygoing guy. And, and, and the show kind of felt that way. It had, a, it had a nice rhythm to it. And you were constantly surrounded by funny people who were trying to be funny when they're not working, which is fun. And it was uh, a, a real joy to be around because at the time I wasn't a crusty old entertainment person like I am now. I was just like, wow, Al Franken, that's amazing. Oh, Steve Martin, holy shit. I just, I can't believe this. Um, so it was a wonderful experience. Do you remember the moment where you feel like you became the crusty entertainment guy? Where you like you saw somebody and you realized Never. you weren't excited? No, no, it's actually been. good because you want you don't want to freak people out when you meet them, especially That's if you're a good working rule of with thumb, them. Yeah, you don't want to be like, "Hi, That's, uh, nice." To, you've got to be able to calm yourself down to write for people, right? Because yeah. it you can be terrified inside, but. You want to be able to get them in a calm place so they trust you and they can open up a little bit and not be guarded. And then how did you transition from that to being uh, a writer for Seinfeld? That was, you know, it was just the same group of guys, weirdly. A guy okay. named uh, Gamelin Pross who had written for Letterman, George uh, Meyer, who went on from Letterman to run The Simpsons. And it was just, those, you know, there wasn't this hunger to be a comedy writer. Most people didn't know what they were. And, you know, most people, I remember when I told my friends I'm writing for David Letterman in my hometown, they were like, they don't have writers. What do you do? <laughs> the guests come on, they ask questions, and Dave's just funny in the beginning. Like, no one really understood that that was a real job and that you're working 12 to 14 hours a day. So without any sort of internet or anything else, you kind of relied on this little network of guys who went, you know, I know this kid in New York who wants to get out of New York and come out to L.A. 
And I, and I got a phone call, and they said, uh, and I said, look, I, I don't quite know how to write sitcoms, and I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't like them. You know, I like this cool late night stuff, but um, I hear Seinfeld's good. And I really hadn't watched any episodes. And they said, we'll fly you out and you can come to Larry David's house and pitch ideas. And I said, okay, cool, who's Larry David? And they told me who Larry David was. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I remember rather than trying to catch up on Seinfeld episodes, which just was not gonna happen. At the time that meant staying home on a Thursday night at nine o'clock. You know, there's no VCR, you know, you're just like, well, how do you do that? Um, I bought a paper book, uh, a paperback book of Jerry's stand-up in the supermarket somewhere on the Upper West Side there and just sat and read his rhythms. I went, oh, this isn't so hard. What's the deal? I was like, I, I kind of <laughs> got it. And uh, <clears throat> they had said, as far as stories, you, would you guys would love this. Don't, don't write stuff. Come in and tell us stories from your life, little moments at a cocktail party or at a date that kind of rubbed you the wrong way, and not what you did, but what you wanted to do. What I wanted to say to that guy, what I felt like I wanted to do to the guy who sold me the jacket, they said, that's where the Seinfeld stories live. And if you're just gonna sit there and write, well, you know, Jerry starts dating Elaine for this reason, or, you know, surprisingly, a lot of people go, you know, I've never seen a story about, you know, Jerry taking a dump. And we would go, yeah, there's a reason why <laughs> you're never going to see the gross stuff. You just got to, you, you've got to put a little basket and net in your head for these odd etiquette moments of life. And so I was like, all right, you know, I just wrote down a bunch of stuff that I experienced, you know, um, you know, little stories here and there about one was about Lorne and how he danced funny and no one respected him after that. That, that became the little kicks. You know, uh, the soup Nazi was this guy I went to to get soup from and didn't get soup the first time. You know, that whole episode is pretty biographical. I'm George in the beginning. I'm the guy <laughs> who didn't get it, didn't take it seriously. I, was, I told Dave Hansen, the, the writer who introduced me to the soup Nazi, I said, look, I know how to order soup. I don't know much, but I know how to order soup. And that first time I was rejected and, you know, indoctrinated into that whole world. Um, you know, it, it, it was a really wonderful show to write for because you could do that. And now, you know, I see episodes occasionally when I'm scooting by and they're little, you know, I recognize uh, a piece of my life that was going on. I go, oh my God, that was my grandmother's toast in the little kicks. I remember the day she did that on Thanksgiving. Here's to those who wish us well and those who don't can go to hell. And, you know, the, the, the parking garage where George's truck is being used for uh, the uh, liaisons with hookers, that was this cheap parking I found on the Upper West Side where I, would, I had a Jeep CJ5, and every time I'd come to drive it on the weekends, I'd find used condoms in it. And I went up to the guy in the booth, and I said, what's happening here? And he goes, look, buddy. And he said the phrase, look, buddy, you'd have to take it up with consumer affairs. And I'm like, take what up with consumer affairs? <laughs> and he goes, well, the prostitutes, they come, your doors don't lock. What am I supposed to do? And I'm like, you're supposed to be guarding my cars. That's what I'm paying you $200 a month to do. And he goes, well, again, take it up with consumer affairs. So I would tell those sorts of stories. And even though it was uh, a little painful in my life, that's, it would make Jerry and Larry laugh, and those became the stories of Seinfeld. Very mysterious, though. You know, I'll be honest, when, when they said, do the soup Nazi as your first episode, I walked out of there not knowing what that meant. I said, that was just a story. I don't know how that's an episode. But, you know, that, that's how great that staff was and how funny Jerry and Larry were. And the, the soup Nazi is, I think if not the, one of the most iconic episodes of the show. And Completely it, confusing, yes. <laughs> I don't get it, but yes. And that was your first episode, and it, is, it has since launched a national chain of soup restaurants. Are you, are you involved with that in any way? Not a dime. Not a dime. Not a dime. We, should, fact, we should fix that. Yeah, There's got to be a lawyer here somewhere. Yeah, I'm happy for everybody involved that I could help them. I, I saw last week someone tweeted a, a couple in New Jersey that got married, and the soup Nazi actor married them. <laughs> And, I, and I, I retweeted it and wrote, this is exactly what I thought would happen as I was writing this. <laughs> it's, just, it's one of the most insane things that has ever happened to me, and I, I don't quite comprehend it. One of the things I love is, you mentioned a minute ago, as you're telling this story, you just said, oh yeah, and this guy sold me a jacket, and like half the people in this room laughed. Like That's all you needed to say to trigger a, a really strong memory in everybody here. Right. What is it about those types of stories and the way you guys presented them 
that creates that kind of resonance. Like most things just don't resonate like that. I'm baffled by it. I, I think it's relatability. I think it's we all relate. Like if I said to the people here, how much time did you take this morning to decide which watch you were wearing? They're all going to relate to that because we all went through that this morning, right? So, you know, I, I, I think a lot of us will walk around and say and do the right things, but inside, you know, as Curb has proven over and over again, we're thinking this thing and the story goes there. It decides to do it. Well, what if I did this? And that becomes the fun of the story. But, uh, but ultimately, I was always looking for relatability. Now, I don't know how we all relate to eight ball jackets, but I know when I was in New York I mean, and I saw a man wearing a fur, I was deeply offended by that. I didn't understand <laughs> it. I was confused and it made me angry. And anger, anger is another column for, for comedy. If there's something you really feel angry about, you want to start do stand-up, look at that little column of things that make you angry and go out and talk about that. So you went on then to have your own late-night talk show? Yes. And now your show is Car Matchmaker? Yes. Right, so you were able to take your kind of career in television writing and then your passion for cars and kind of mash those two things together. What was it like to kind of bring those two parts of your life together? That was very easy. That was not Great. hard. Yeah, that was a phone call from a friend of mine. Um, you know, at, at the time, what I'm doing right now, in fact, is, you know, I'm writing, uh, getting pitches ready for a uh, half-hour comedy season. So that time I was doing that, and um, a friend of mine, Ellen Rackerton, had asked me for advice three or four months prior. She was asking about paint to sample on a Porsche, and should I do it? And I said, well, how many of these things do you have? She goes, none. I don't really know anything. And I said, well, why don't you go down to the dealership and just buy one? Whatever they have, just buy that first. Don't, don't get involved in paint to sample. And she said, well, Jerry said that I should definitely do paint to sample. And what do you think about that? I go, don't listen to Jerry. He's wrong on this one, trust me. So four months or five months later, her car came in and it was wrong, it was screwed up and she was upset. She said, I should have listened to you. I said, yeah, you should have listened to me. She goes, I, I'm not happy with the color. It's a beautiful car, by the way. It's a 993 and like a Haagen-Dazs creamy color. But um, she said, you know, you're really like a car matchmaker. We should do a show. And this is uh, Oprah Winfrey's executive producer at the time, just left Oprah. And I said, and I went like that. And I went, wow, I could, I go, you're right. I could sell that show. Car matchmaker, that's a two-word pitch, which I, you probably don't know anything about selling shows. But if you can sell your show in the smallest amount of words, you know, right in the beginning when you're opening your mouth, you, you, you always have an advantage. A lot of times, and I'm kind of dealing with it right now in these half-hour comedies I'm writing, I don't have that yet. And it, it becomes a little vague when you're communicating the idea. But when you go, I want to do a show about cars called Car Matchmaker, where I help people find cars. When we brought in the Esquire, they went, we want it. Just like that. Now tell us about it, right? So, you know, I saw the possibility there, and I, uh, all I asked was, you know, just let me be funny from time to time and do, do what I like to do with cars and talk the way I want to talk, and I'll do it. So I didn't think it was going anywhere. I thought some of these other shows, you know, at the time, one was with Jason Bateman, that that was going to work out. But as, you know, TV has proven over and over again, you never quite know which lottery number is going to get called. So car matchmaker happened I you know dove into it and it's a dream job you know you're showing up to work driving cars and translating cars for a mainstream audience you know? and now we'll look at this week's sponsor bronze watches have become something of a trend lately but with the black bay bronze Tudor is looking to its rich history of building watches for some of the world's largest navies not simply following a fad the robust bronze case nods to naval engineering and shipbuilding and is made of a special alloy that will take on a beautiful patina over time, making each watch unique and intimately connected to the person wearing it. Inside, of course, you've got an in-house Tudor movement, the Caliber MT5601. It has a silicon balance spring, a 70-hour power reserve, and a cost chronometer certification, too. Visit your local authorized retailer to see this watch in the metal or tudorwatch.com to learn more. Let's get back to the show. And so I, I know in the Talking Watches episode, you talked a little bit about choosing the watches that you wear on Car Matchmaker. How do you, how do you make that decision? Oh, it's so stupid. It's really bad. I mean, and I that's, screwed, that's what we're I, all here for. I Come screwed on. myself, right? So I think you would relate to the idea like, well, why don't I wear 
you know, I, I'm a huge fan of yours, but also on the dash. So, you know, and I remember talking to Jerry. I'm like, you know, you know, you got your car thing. We can wear these watches on the dash. We'll write about us. And we got really excited about that. That was like what we were super psyched about. But what I hadn't anticipated was I would be shooting pieces of shows, not one whole show in two days. So I might shoot three different shows in two days and then pick that up the next week. So these, these shows are very low budget. So there's no continuity guy on set. So frequently, you would forget which watch you had on, and then nobody on production staff would know. So then it became kind of nightmarish to go. So by the third season of that show, I was just picking something that I loved, and I would wear it for most of the season. That's, that's how I did it. And there was no real consideration other than, I think, what we all do, which is I like this new thing I have, or I'm really into this old thing I have right now, or I'm really gonna wear this this summer. I really use the same criteria. You know, just do, do I wanna see it and do I like wearing it right now? I mean, do you, I think this is a question I can ask all three of you. When you guys are driving different cars, you all drive different cars pretty, pretty frequently. Are you pairing the watches you're wearing with those cars? Is that a thing that crosses your mind? Constantly. Yeah, I, I, I kind of knew that I one. Sorry, that was, a, that, was a, that was a layup yeah. for you. Constantly. Uh, yeah, I mean, for, for me, a big part of it is like what, what these cars and what these watches represent is, is, is like another version of, of somebody's life, maybe not even my own life. Uh, but I love old things because of the stories that it tells and, and, and a time that, is, is, that came before me. Uh, and it's far simpler and, in my mind, much more beautiful than, than the life that we live now with Instagram and all that. So I, I think about it all the time. I really do, whether it's the... The 65-911 with my first year Daytona, or my launch show with an Eberhardt split second, I, I think about it constantly, for sure. Yeah, I go those deep. are your favorite pairings? Those are two of my favorite pairings. I mentioned one of them on your podcast, actually, with Zuckerman. The, the yeah. launch show and the, the split second Eberhardt go, go just perfectly. Yeah, together. yeah. But really, who is that for? It's just for you, right? Only, nobody has any idea what either of them are. I mean, like, nobody, launch is barely around anymore. Eberhardt is a shell of what it used to right, be. It's, right, right. It's just for me. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the occasional friend that's into it like I am, but it's just for me. You had a great line in that podcast about, because we were trying to understand that, about at the time we were trying to wrap our heads around yellow gold watches, which is something I've never appreciated at all and I'm still struggling with. And that's, yeah. Ben is wearing one right now. I'm wearing I just a solid held it up. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. What is struggle? These, yeah. are, these are the extent of my problem. <laughs> what what is that gold. watch, Ben? Uh, this is a, a yellow gold 6263 Daytona. Uh, it's just a beautiful thing. And, you know, yellow gold used to not be my thing, then it was my thing, then I went back and forth and you know this is a watch that I owned in 2000 and I think 13 or 14 sold it for an FP Jean Turbion of all things that I kept for like three months uh, and always wanted to buy one back and then I was offered this one recently by by a friend and this is actually my birth year and so that just gave me that that one little thing to push me over the edge to make the purchase uh, and yellow gold is just fun and I think like earlier on in my collecting career I wanted to buy like important watches or special watches uh, and now I just want to buy stuff that makes me happy and this is not a particularly rare or important watch it just makes me happy that's not rare I mean, it's relatively <laughs> rare. Good lord! If you need one? Let me know. I could but, buy a uh, house for that. <laughs> I've, tr I've tried about? that. I've tried that watch on. I tried it on when I was in New York last time, and it's it, that fun is the exact word. But it kind of like evil fun. It kind of makes you a bad person <laughs> a little bit. Totally. Like, I mean, well, James, feels... you've been you've been wearing a bunch of yellow gold watches recently, yeah, right? Yeah, you've yeah. been trying to like play around with it. Yeah, I, I got I got I don't know what it was. Like about two years ago, I tried on a gold watch, and I was like, oh, I don't hate this. Like I thought I did. What was your line about them? Do you remember? Uh, About being the person you, you dream of, you had some great explanation. I, I, I <laughs> wish I could remember the line specifically, but it, it probably is. But it was, you were saying it's about the fantasy of the guy you hoped you'd be, but you know deep inside you're, you're not. You're not, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, I love, and I immediately went, that's right. Yeah. Because we, you know, especially Zuckerman, the, my co-host, he buys cars based on the idea of that same idea. Yeah. Like a 300 SL is not Zuckerman. Zuckerman is a street <laughs> fighter from Long Island, right? Yeah. He's, that's not who he is, but, but we want to be that, we so badly and desperately want to be that gentleman that we're that's never exactly. going to be. And the watch allows you at least the fantasy for a few hours of being that guy. That's I really exactly. love that. Yeah, and, yeah. and that, that's exactly it. And like, I'm, I'm a kid from Rochester, New York. Like, I want to be the guy that's, that's wearing a double-breasted suit getting out of a you know, coach-built car in the 1960s. I never will be. You know, I'm a, I'm a dorky kid from from upstate you know that's okay and uh, you know th this just allows you to, to kind of live that world in, in your own in your own right mind. but what is it about yellow gold that rubs people the wrong way i don't know honestly i mean i remember on that episode zuckerman was like i could never wear a yellow gold watch i was like you of all people could wear a yellow gold he is watch, built you know? for a yellow gold watch i sold him a yellow gold watch i think Perfect. on that episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it looks great on him of it course. really does it's just like again like but he wears a suit every yeah. day he works in personal injury and personal injury <laughs> is about 
you know, when the client shows up, they want to see money. They want to see the Porsche. They want to see the watch. And they go, this guy's going to win, which he does do. He so does it, it actually helps him in business, but he's, he has trouble wearing it. Can, can we talk about Zuckerman a little bit? Sure. He is a fascinating, fascinating I would person. love to. He yeah. was supposed to be here. He sends his love to everybody. We couldn't have him, so we'll just talk about him. He's <laughs> yeah. visiting his talk about him behind in his New back. Jersey. In, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, it's nothing so nice, no. He said there was a Greyhound <laughs> bus station near where he was going, and he, he was feeling unsafe. So how, how did you meet Zuckerman in the first place? <clears throat> Zuckerman was my neighbor uh, up on Doheny Drive when I lived in Hollywood. Yeah, he was just one of the guys who lived in the neighborhood. And I saw him, um, I remember he always wore, well, he's a lawyer, so he was always in a suit, and he'd wear overcoats, but he also added the funny little hat. And he was, at the time, driving cars uh, that told me he really knew nothing about cars, which was every man's first choice, the Jaguar E-Type and the old Corvette from the 50s. <laughs> and he had one of each. And, um, you know, when I saw him, I went, well, this, this is good. I can help train this guy. I can get him out of these cars, and I can have a new friend on the street. And that's where the whole thing began. So I would let him drive my old Porsches and... Um, you know, very quickly he bought that first wrong Porsche. It was some really wrecked up 72 something, just a mess of a car. He called it an R group car. I was just like a piece of crap. You got to sell that thing. But he, he caught the bug pretty quickly. And, you know, we've been friends ever since. And he is, he's kind of your foil on, on, the, on the podcast. Zuckerman has all of the upbringing of someone who could have been a great comedian. And I, and I realized it right away. The Long Island upbringing, not fitting in, got beat up in school. He, he Very articulate, a steel trap lawyer memory, which is, you know, good for jokes. But he would, he would make me laugh, and it's hard to make me laugh. And, um, you know, I, I hang with Jerry a lot when he's out here. We ride, drive, and, and I, you know, I thought, you know, this guy could actually work in this little circle. Some, some people might melt in that circle because of Jerry and start getting chatty, and, but, I, but I think Zuckerman can handle it. And, you know, I, I brought him to coffee out in Malibu, and it was a hit. I'm so proud of this. I, I'm so proud. <laughs> Jerry immediately recognized his comedic abilities. He said, that guy is funny. I go, I know. He could have been a comedian. Um, and then I said, uh, I think Jerry was like, I think I'm going to put him in something. I go, no, no, you're not. Zuckerman is my find. I'm going to put him in this podcast I'm doing. You're not taking him anywhere. And, uh, you know, I put him in front of a microphone. He had all the insecurities I think everyone has when they start. I don't like the way I sound. I don't like the way I look. And I'm like, get I over that. I love his voice. Yeah, it's great, I right? Love it. oh, it's yeah, great. It's hilarious. How you doing, everybody? That's how Zuckerman <laughs> talks. And then when it comes to cars and watches, He's just, he, he will read something and immediately memorize it. So you can use him as a resource. And he's become a really, a, a, an historian of Porsche and really knows a lot about the cars. You know, and, and super funny on the podcast because of his thuggy presentation mm -hmm. combined with intelligence. It's great. I th I I've really enjoyed the show so far. I mean, thank you. Really yeah, yeah, we have fun he's doing it. He's a great it. host. It's a nice, it's a nice week, uh, it's a nice hour of my life. That's, that, that, I don't. Uh, you know, it's not my job, but I love doing it. It's really fun. Nobody messes with it. There are no notes. We turn the mic on. We bring in Ben Clymer. We have fun for an hour, and then you can listen to it. Can you, uh, for everybody who might not know the, the name and when it comes out, can you give everybody a full plug? <clears throat> this is Spike's Car Radio, not unlike Hodinky Radio, and it's on Podcast One and, uh, or wherever you get your podcasts. And it's, um, it's, it's kind of evolving. We've been doing it for about a year and a half now, and it's either cars or it's entertainment, or if we're lucky, it's both. So our sweet spot is Jay Leno, Adam Carolla, uh, Jason Bateman, um, anybody who likes cars but is also in entertainment. Sometimes we do just comedy like uh, Tom Segur or, or Burt Kreischer. This week we just posted Jerry up in Monterey, um, this panel I did with him about comedians of cars getting coffee. So uh, it's really, I call it kind of a mobile cars and coffee that sometimes is uh, on cars. Sometimes we'll have Rod Emery on and take a deep dive on cars. Other times we take a deep dive on comedy. Most of the time we're kind of right in the middle. And it's, uh, it's super fun. You, you obviously spend a lot of time with, with, with Jerry Seinfeld. What is it like going out in public with him? I mean, is that, is that annoying for him and for you? Do people come up to him and do Seinfeld bits all the time? No, never. Really? No. That's They're, shocking. <clears throat> people come up and say hi, and, and, and that's fine. But, but, but Jerry's always been kind of an out there guy. He was just, you know, takes a subway, rides his bike in New York. People don't feel like this will be, I think, the only time you see him, so they, they tend not to grab on, right? 
if you, if you get out of a car, like a, a Kardashian or something, and then you're hiding and doing this, the people tend to, you know, go at you a little harder. But, but most of the folks that I see him interact with, they're, um, you know, car fans, comedy fans, car fans, you know, and he loves it. Well, we're going to ask you a couple more questions, but in about five minutes, uh, we will do audience Q&A. So if you have a question for Spike or anybody else up here, uh, you can line up at that microphone right there uh, in about five minutes, and uh, we'll do some Q&A. Um, Sounds good. Before can we I ask get... them questions? I have lots of questions for them. Sure. We can pass a mic around. <laughs> There's no rules. <clears throat> I want to see everybody's here. wearing. <laughs> um, one of the things I remember from your Talking Watches episode that I wanted to touch on here is um, affordable watches. Right. Um, I know you're really into the idea that like a cool watch or a cool car shouldn't have to cost a stupid amount of money. Right, right, yeah. Well, that started, I think, with Bradley and, and Autodromo, right? It wasn't he uh, the first guy out there going, let's make kind of auto-themed timepieces that aren't going to break the bank for people, which I, yeah. I love the idea. And on top of it, they were beautiful designs, you know, and... and and I met him at an Esquire thing in New York and was like, yeah, whatever you need, man. I, I love everything you're doing here. And I don't think a watch should have to be thousands of dollars to, to make something cool. And most recently on your site, you had the, is it the Unimatic or is there a pronunciation? I don't know. Yep, I think we have some of those on wrists of folks. Yeah, I think too. our uh, video team are wearing <clears throat> them uh, back here. And you do, you know, you know you got us. You got us all with your photography that you make us crazy and suddenly we're taking our credit cards out. You do this shot right here very well with the shirt down there. So the, the man who takes those photos is actually right back there. Who's that? Yeah. Oh, but these guys against the wall. They, they do the hand-in-pocket yeah. shots all day long. There it is. That's yeah. it. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> okay, I'm a sucker for the hand-in-pocket shot. But that goes to what you say on the podcast all the time where you feel you know a watch better when you see someone else wearing it. Well... The internet is a great equalizer for cars and watches. You know, when we were doing Car Matchmaker, I said, Esquire, why aren't we doing a watch show? And the, and, and the executive, Matt, said, because you can't test drive watches. And I went, that's good. I like that. <laughs> I go, but on the internet, they're all the same size, and you have the same emotional reaction to it. And again, I saw the Unimatic watch, a brand I knew nothing about, um, but I saw it on that wrist shot, and I went, what is that? I don't have anything like it. I, I, then I read the story, and I see words like Italy, and I see prices that are under 1000 and I see rubber, rubber NATO strap, but a, a strap I'd never seen before. And I thought, oh, that's a watch I'm going to wear a lot. And it's become one of my favorite watches. Now, They're see, that would, cool. be, that would do a season on Car Matchmaker. Is that, that what we're going to see? What's that? Are we going to see that? No, I don't think I'm doing Car Matchmaker anymore. I no? think we've got something new coming that's in the same vein. But um, the weird thing about Car Matchmaker was the show's a hit, but the network got canceled. That's, <laughs> that's the problem. It's, you know, I thought I had seen everything in entertainment before, but I have never seen this. A network just go pop. It just disappeared. And uh, that's just because people are consuming media differently these days. They don't want these uh, big bundles of cable shows. They don't even want TV anymore. They just want a, a show separate from that. So even though the network was very profitable, you know, I, I, I heard they were making, the, you know, that last year they were on, they were up $60 million in pure profit. That wasn't uh, significant enough for to keep them in the NBC lineup. So NBC uh, Sports runs the show now. And... Uh, my partner, John, and I, who's back there, we have a production company. We're out with uh, the next one that we're pretty excited about. So we should have some news on that front soon. Anything else uh, we should be keeping an eye out for from you uh, <coughs> coming down the pipeline? No, please don't keep an eye on me. <laughs> 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 please don't. Um, no, we're just hunkered down there making, uh, making content out in Santa Monica. That's what Hangar 56 Media is about. It's an all-service uh, production company. So we're, we're out there you know, developing and selling everything, every kind of show, I think, except for dramas and movies. That's out of our expertise, so. so something just popped in my head when you said the word hangar. And so we shot your talking watches in an airplane hangar, yeah. which was legitimately one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. Right. I didn't know that people did that, that mm -hmm. you could store things in airplane hangars. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that setup out there? Yes, the Santa Monica airport hangar history goes back to the 90s in David Letterman, where there is a moment where, and it still exists here in LA, there are no garages really in a lot of the houses that are here. And uh, they were not putting planes in the hangars. There weren't a lot of people with airplanes out of Santa Monica, so they had all of these empty spaces. And Letterman figured, 
well, you know, I'm in New York, but when I'm out here, I can just store a bunch of cars out here and drive them here. So he rented a hangar at Santa Monica Airport, put a padlock on it. There was a cot in it, a telephone, a rotary dial telephone, and a bathroom. And no lie, it, it, so I, I, I got hired on his show, and a month later, uh, we were out for the Emmys. I wasn't nominated, but they were nice enough to fly me out for it. And um, Dave knew I was a car guy. And he said, uh, why don't you come out to the airport and <laughs> drive these cars? And I said, what does that mean? Why are there cars at an airport? And, um, you know, I went down that Saturday morning, and he opened up this hangar. And, and there he had uh, a Ferrari Dino, a 4Cam Speedster, you know, a lot of things I didn't know what they were. And, and you know, I drove a lot of his cars. I, I was still dumbfounded by the fact that Dave was sleeping here for the Emmys. He was sleeping on this cot rather than going to a hotel. And he said, uh, you know, it's my cars. It's something I totally understand right now. You know, I like looking at my cars. I don't get to see them much. But I thought he was dingy. I thought he was really out of his mind. So, you know, <clears throat> from there, Jerry's doing Seinfeld and Dave gets him a hanger. Um, and then I'm working with Jerry and I, you know, have uh, one car garage, but buy a second car. And he's like, just get a hanger. I'll get it for you. So it was just this way of, you know, storing cars with a padlock. Literally doors that just open up like this. Nothing glamorous, just, you know, space. And at the time, not a big deal at all, you know. These, they were a couple hundred bucks a month. And you could put five or six cars in there. That, that's Santa Monica Airport. <laughs> that's the story. And now I've been down there for, for 20 years. And it's, uh, I feel it's one of the most special places on... on at least in California, is just four square miles of open area where you don't see a lot. And, you know, my kids were able to go down there and watch planes take off. Their families on the other side that come every weekend and watch planes take off. There's 140 small business down there, people making guitars, fixing motorcycles, starting, you know, uh, computer companies. Snap is down there now. It's just such a beautiful place with a wonderful, rich history. And, you know, of course, they want to close it. And... They want to tell you that they're going to put parks up there. Well, we have four. What do you mean by that? You know, and they're going to throw up office buildings. I think in ten years, but we'll see. We'll see if that changes. It's uh, it's a neat place, and it's uh, there've been a lot of there's a lot of car history down there. In fact, I remember when I first went down there, Charlie Sheen had a big hanger down there, and he had team guys with Team Sheen shirts. That and I was like, whoa, he he made shirts made for his guys. That's pretty cool. Um, that did not end well. <laughs> did not end well. All right, so before we do the Q&A, last question. What is the watch that you're wearing on your wrist right now? This is a, a 6263 Rolex. I buy, I think like a lot of you guys buy, I try to buy in a moment um, that I'll remember. Like, and, and this watch was the third season pickup from my late night show, which we were a struggling show on Fox, and it was very difficult to get their support, and we worked... Uh, we, we had a bunch of stuff go viral, and suddenly we were picked up right away. So to celebrate that, unfortunately, I traded in a home plate dial Tudor Monte Carlo. A, a, a huge mistake. And uh, gave him a little cash, and I got this guy. And, you know, now when I wear it, I remember this really, uh, you know, a, a very special time in my career. And, it, you know, in entertainment, they're hard to come by. So, you know, I, it, that's, that's kind of how I buy. It's like it's a, it's a moment. Except they have no excuses for the unimatic. Just zero, other than his <laughs> photograph. Yeah. That was impulse. That was bad. Let's, uh, let's get some questions from the audience. Does anybody want to get up and go first? Uh, hi, Spike. Hi, Ben. Hi. Uh, that microphone uh, right there. Sit right in the mic. Yeah, so whenever I travel, I mean, I've, I don't travel that much, so I miss home. And I put on Seinfeld or Andy Griffith show. Just makes me feel at home always. <clears throat> so yesterday, it's an epiphany. I checked into the hotel. I put on Seinfeld. And George goes from manure to watches. So did you write that show? He went from which? Manure. Like the horse manure. It was a scene where he's... The horse the manure. Yeah. From to watches. No. Oh, so George went from horse manure to watches. Yeah. That was his... And what was, what did, what was he deciding? I... He was with a waitress from the hotel, and, <laughs> <laughs> and 
she noticed the watch on his uh, hand and she said nice watch oh my boyfriend has the same watch oh she didn't have a boyfriend i mean that oh i get it i get it yeah 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 no i did not write that one you know we weren't nuts about watches at the time i bought that um hoyer reissue carrera I think I remember buying that because I saw it in a magazine, you know, but when we were on a break. Um, <clears throat> but none of us were big watch guys. There's a, in the Rye episode, the one where Kramer is driving the, uh, the, the Hanson cab and the horse is passing gas because he's eating beefarino. In that episode, Jerry's orange 73911 RS is on the street. If you look closely, you'll see the camera go by it. And then you got to ask yourself, well, what is that car doing in New York on a, in the middle of winter? So occasionally you'll see one of Jerry's cars in there, but we weren't we weren't watch people at that point. We didn't we didn't understand yet. Good question though. Uh, hi, um, avid reader. I love your podcast, Spike. So this question is for that a little bit. Um, you alluded Ben to wanting to be a coach builder or get out of a coach built car from the late 60s, and I happen to know both of you guys are getting a Zagato built for you. Um, I was That's hoping embarrassing. for... <laughs> uh, called uh, out. Not in this room. <laughs> I was hoping for an update, because yours was supposed to be there in like May-ish. This is an ex... I've been hoping for an update. Thank you for asking this. <laughs> ben is ahead of me, so uh, yes. Uh, Where uh, are you at? Pretty, pretty close. Pretty, pretty, pretty really close. Uh, potentially, like, in, within the next, like, three to four weeks, uh, it, it should be ready. Uh, but they're Italian, so it could be three to four months or three to four years. We, we don't know. I don't know. think most people even know the car you're talking about, so you may have to back up and explain that. Okay, so this is a, it's a Porsche 356, which is, you know, one of the first Porsches. Uh, Zagato, which is a coach builder, they make bodies for cars, basically just the body. Uh, they designed a car in 1959 for Porsche that was never made, uh, and so now they're making them uh, pretty much the old-fashioned way. So, so hand-hammered aluminum body bodies, uh, really a, a stock 1959 uh, Porsche 356 just with this beautiful kind of sculpted aluminum body on it. And they're making nine of them, uh, two of which will be coming to the United States owned by, by this guy. Uh, and, and Zuckerman. And Zuckerman, He's of course. He's part of that. Uh, and, and myself. Uh, so feeling very, very lucky to be a part of that for sure. Uh, and that, yeah, I mean, last I heard it should be, it should be done within the next month. And, and what is the story there that they were going to make these cars in 59 and they decided not to? So they, 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 they made one Spider uh, in 58. Uh, this guy, Claude, a French driver, died in it uh, in, in some dramatic fashion. And because of that, they just kind of canceled the entire program. Uh, and so they, they brought back the Spider first, even as, as kind of a sanction to. And then this one, the Coupe, which was obviously just a completed version of that, right. they, they never made. Uh, wow. So they, they, they discovered these archives, I think, within the last like, maybe four years. Uh, and now Zagato is starting to bring back some of these designs that they never, that they never really made or never completed. I have some pictures on my phone I can show you after they're of Ben's car, <laughs> if you want to see. But it's pretty exciting. It's going to be really cool. The car wait. is beautiful. It really is. It's a really special thing, and the idea of, of like a handmade car today, uh, I think, yeah, doesn't, doesn't yeah. really exist. You know? Yeah. I can't we, believe they're making nine of them, and you two mooks are getting two of <laughs> it them. Makes no sense. <laughs> that makes, makes no sense. No, no, no. I know. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. It, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Where are the rest of them going? Uh, a, a bunch to Europe, uh, one or two to the Middle East, I think one to Asia. But I mean, it's only nine cars, so it's, it's, it's not a very a car. interesting car. We're going to take a deep dive on it and really try to. I didn't understand it at first, mm -hmm. but but it is Porsche sanctioned. Oh yeah. Did you go do their presentation there? I did in Milan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they had to present the whole idea to Porsche just to use the Porsche badge and to put it on the car. And, and they said they were the only manufacturer that's ever done that, that Porsche is giving them permission to do it. So yeah. for me, that, that was the blessing I needed to understand this car. That's exactly right, for sure. And I, I know that Porsche, or at least I'm told, that, that Porsche actually wants car number zero for the Porsche Museum. So oh, really? That, that's a pretty big blessing from, from Porsche. Wow. So. All right. We're going to make some money. <laughs> Let's hope. Does anybody want to buy a Zagato? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So uh, I, I'm just curious. I hear a lot about Grail watches. Everybody has their Grail watch that they reach for that they really want. I'm wondering if what you guys uh, would call your Grail watches currently, because you all have you know wonderful collections, six two six three. I'm sure that Ben has a fair number of watches. I don't even know what they are, but um, you know I, I'd be curious to hear what you guys would consider your current Grail watches, things you're reaching for or searching for that would be just of interest to all of us. Maybe let's start down at the end. James, I'm going to put you on the spot first. You're sitting furthest from me, so I'm going to make you go first. Sure. So I love, uh, I really like uh, GMT watches. And on top of that, I'm a big Explorer 2 fan, so I'd probably hunt down an early example of, uh, of an Explorer 2. Uh, I'm always on the lookout for them, and there's, you know, some variety in the earlier years. Ben has a really beautiful one. 
uh, and that's probably where I would land if I was going to make uh, a Grail buy of some sort. Oh, I bought my Grail watch by mistake. It was a, a Tudor French Navy sub, Marine Nationale, and um, I bought it because it was silver and blue from Wanna Buy a Watch here, Ken Jacobs, and, uh, and then discovered what it was. Ken has always taken care of me and always said, you know, here's the one to buy, right? I, wanted it, I, I just love the way that, that Tudor Submariner dial looked, and I love the blue, and a neighbor a friend of mine had it, and he said, well, if you're gonna get that, get this one. And, uh, and then I figured out what it was. <laughs> a new one? I'm not, cha I'm trying not to chase watches right now. My wife is really going to kill me. But, um, you know, it would be in the Daytona family pretty much every time. And then um, I like the, you know, the Abercrombie and Fitch, Hoyer stuff, that little blue on that dial. Like, you know, come see me after. <laughs> you know, it's uh, a lot of it, a lot of the stuff I see on his site, stuff I still don't. I'm still learning about all the different brands. So, you know, those come up all, all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm also trying not to chase quite as much, uh, which, which is hard being me. Um, you know, th there's nothing crazy that, that, I, that I would really want. You know, I've, I've owned in one way or another most of the, the Rolex and Patek references I've wanted. I would say at this point there would be specific examples of, of watches that I'm looking for. I'm a big fan of this guy named Briggs Cunningham. I wrote a story about him on, on the website. He's kind of this like the original kind of like American entrepreneur slash like sportsman. He designed a sail in yachting. I mean, he was the first guy to, to, to compete at Le Mans. I mean, he's really from the US, uh, really kind of an amazing guy. And in the, in the luxury world, in the automotive world, and in the watch world, there's not that many Americans that do all that much. So I've just kind of been, I've gravitated to him as just a fan. Um, he owned a Patek Philippe uh, a 565, which is a waterproof Calatrava with brigade numbers. It's in, inscribed on the back. I had the opportunity to buy it actually from Eric Koo, who I think might be here or might, will be here later, um, maybe six years ago. And it was just, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the money. I didn't really know who Briggs was in, in that way. And I ended up passing on it, ended up selling it Phillips for, for much more money. And I, I would love to get my hands on that someday. Uh, I love the 565. I love Briggs Cunningham. I just love the story. Um, so that, that would be one that, that I would like to have, uh, but, you know, who knows? You know what I wanted to get from you is what, you know, and I ask this a lot of watch collectors, what's the right number? Like, do you have a number, like a magic number where, you know, I'm going to... In terms of quantity? As far as quantity. Yeah. Like, this is perfect uh, number for a collection where I'm actually going to wear this stuff. You know, I think my number has, has reduced dramatically over the past few years. There was a time when I was going a little crazy, like a little, <laughs> little nuts. Right. Yeah. This is a fine line between hoarding and collecting. Correct, yes. And enjoying yourself and obsessing. Yes. Right? I, I, I've sold off a, a good chunk of, of some of the, the lesser pieces and some of the big pieces as well. I sold... I sold well, what's the number? Uh, I would say... <laughs> 25. Wow. <laughs> For me, anyway. Uh, okay, maybe, that's maybe an 20. answer. Uh, 25. 25, yeah. And how do 25. you carve that up? I, I, I don't, honestly. You know, I, I don't give it too much thought. I'm, I'm, I'm much more kind of reactionary. Like, if I see it, I want it. If I don't, whatever. Uh, that's but maybe, good. But I think with time, and, you know, th there will be a life for me post-Todinky, potentially. And I think when that, that comes to be, I'll probably, you know, reduce that number to, to 10. You know, there's a few vintage watches that I'll always keep just because I think they're perfect. 6239 Double Swiss, 2526 White Gold, etc. Um, and then the few watches that I bought for, for meaningful personal reasons, so I'll keep those, obviously. So I think 10 will be the number that I settle on eventually. Well, that's good. I like that. I'm getting that's a there. good explanation. Very reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> that's very reasonable. James seems to be uh, thinking, <laughs> thinking something different down there at the end. I, I always say that it's, uh, it's like what you wear plus. So like for me, it might be like five plus. So it'd be the five watches that I actually wear frequently plus the ones I can't get rid of that have some sentimental value or aren't, aren't worth enough to move on unless you're able to give them to a family member or something like that. So for me, it's maybe like five plus. That's the slop bucket you're Somewhere talking about. Yeah. I have the, the watches I like and then the slop bucket. Oh, oh, you need a watch. <laughs> and that's what I'll I call see, those watches. It's a, not a very good way to collect, but... I mean, I think you've got to start eight. somewhere, right? Eight is a, is a, is a great number. Eight seems like that's a, a good, good number. number to me. You'll, you'll wear the watches and not feel bad. I feel like if I'm not wearing it, it causes me anxiety. Yeah. Like I, I feel <clears throat> like I'm somehow like letting the watch down by not wearing it. And just, if I can't wear it enough, I want it to go to somebody who will and I can do something else. Yeah. The, the worst thing that, that I have done, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, is that I've got two or three watches that I bought and have never worn. 
uh, because they're new old stock. Like they're just like they've never been worn. I bought them, you know, for just just to have. Most of universals, so not not super expensive stuff. But I've got two universals that have le like legitimately never been worn. Like the, like the stickers are on the back, the, the the original strap, paperwork, everything. And sooner, like I don't know what I'm even going to do with these things. Like they just sit in my safe, and, and that's it. I look at them every now and then. Um, that that's a problem. I think those are, will probably have to go at some point. Yeah. This is turning yeah. into a Watchaholics Anonymous meeting, right? <laughs> yeah, right. It's gonna, it's I'll tell you bad. what I do. My, my name is yeah. Stephen, and I have a problem. Uh, so Stephen, what's your Grail watch? Uh, I mean, if we're talking overall crazy Grail watches, um, that Philippe Dufour Duality that sold last year was pretty, uh, pretty wild. Uh, the fact that it is so understated, you look, you know, from across the room and nobody, even real watch guys, nobody will have any idea what it is. And quietly, it's like one of the best watches ever made. Um, yeah, I really, getting the chance to see that and try it on last year, actually here in LA, uh, during the Philips preview was, was a real, real treat. Sir. So some would say that you guys have a strong influence on this whole movement towards Japanese watches and the resurgence of Grand Seiko. What do you guys think the, uh, the move uh, towards Japanese watches and, and potentially even companies like Citizen and Casio coming in with additional automatic uh, movements, where, where are things going in the Japanese watch market? James, do you want to uh, field that one? Uh, I suppose. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I think uh, I think it's just slowly a return to, um, I, it's probably a, mostly a reaction in some way to pricing in the market and uh, finding value. And as you increase the general level of discourse in terms of enthusiast knowledge, I think that you also increase the reflection of that and what people are going to buy. So if there's more people talking about, if more people talking about from a, a high level, the quality that's in a Seiko at $200, a quality that's in a Seiko at $8,000, whatever it may be, I think that that is kind of a, a rising tide for the entire process. And I definitely think that we'll see uh, Citizen, uh, the group at large, including some of their smaller uh, and sub-brands, uh, return back towards, uh, obviously not, not moving away in any way from like EcoDrive and such, but definitely returning to more automatics and, and things like that, that, that have a bit more of a prestige feel to them when it comes to uh, an enthusiast. And something I would add to that is like the, the, the Japanese just have like a, a collecting gene in them. And, and I mean that from a watch perspective, from even from a Porsche perspective. I mean, some of the best Porsche collectors are, are in Japan. Uh, I think 80% of the Dufour Simplicities were sold in Japan uh, when they were new. Uh, the, the Japanese just have an understanding of, of craft that I think is, is, is far more elevated and, and far more kind of like widespread uh, than, than, than Europe even and, and in the US. So I think we're, we're going to start to see Grand Seiko in particular really push forward in a way that, that is kind of unprecedented. Uh, I think that they will take over uh, what, what Rolex has done. You know, it's never going to be Rolex because the brand is different. But in terms of quality, I expect them to, to far exceed what, what Rolex is doing in the very, very near future. Uh, they, they are not messing around. They make a hell of a watch for a hell of a good price. And, you know, I, I think kind of playing into what both of you were talking about is, is there's something about them that's just a little different and a little elevated. And they're just, they don't feel quite like any watch you can buy from Switzerland. And I think as collectors get more educated and there's more information out there, people are looking for something new. They want something different. They want something that's a slightly different expression than, than what they already know. My question is about the collector gene. Um, <laughs> I think we collect more things than just watches. I, I see you guys are into cars and watches, but I'm just curious, what other things do you collect besides watches? <clears throat> Speeding tickets. <laughs> I've quite a few of those. Angry looks from my wife. Um, what else? This is what we get for bringing a comedian on the show. We, we kind of walked right into this one. <laughs> you know, I, it's a good question because um, I force myself not to look for motorcycles. I have one motorcycle, 66 Triumph Bonneville. Um, uh, and I, I, I could go down that wormhole pretty easily. Guitars is another one I could go down that wormhole. You know. <sighs> It's for me. It's just cars and watches. I've just tried to limit it and contain it so it doesn't become um, my overall uh, day. You know, <laughs> otherwise I might not get any work done. But I could very easily have this spread like a virus to many other different worlds. James. Uh, yeah, I mean, cars, uh, not so much at this point in my life. I have a car. Uh, I collect, I guess, more information about cars or, or data uh, since I was a little kid, but definitely camera gear is, a, is my current problem, especially old old lenses, oh, like yeah. stuff you can find on Craigslist yep. for $50 that maybe doesn't even mount to a camera I own yet. I kind of have to have it. 
and uh, mm. and I'm running out of shelf space. Is the current problem? I should collect more shelves. Isn't Leica the king of that? Oh, I, would I don't. So, I won't yeah. go near that store. I won't even look at it when I go by because there's it's so, so there's another beautiful. <laughs> That's a whole thing different drug for sure. With those sure. vintage like cues, and you look at. It, I'm not even quite sure what it is, but I know I got to buy it. And then you see the price. You're like, my God. Yeah, it, it's offensive. Uh, as, yeah. as a Leica collector, it's offensive. Um, but I mean, watches and cars are the, are the two for me. I, I don't collect Leicas. I have one Leica that I don't use, and Steven knows about it. And I bought it just because it was like a prototype and blah, blah, blah. And, and I bought it, and it sits on my shelf, and it's beautiful. I don't know what I'm ever going to do with it. Um, but th there was something that, that Steven and Ohm uh, mentioned in, in that episode, which is Run. Uh, and it's not something that, that, that I had really thought of before, but Ohm said that, that you kind of collect people. And like in the same yeah. way that you like, you, you bring in a watch, if you like it, you keep it. If you don't like it, you kind of like let it move along. And I think that, that that's an interesting idea that, that Ohm um, had mentioned about the idea of like bringing people into your world. And if you really connect with them and if you really, if they resonate with you and vice versa, then they stay in your life forever. And if they don't, they, they move along. And that's just kind of a, an idea that you guys should go back and listen to the Ohm Malik podcast because that, that was a great one. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, I guess besides watches, uh, camera gear to some extent, um, I finally took the plunge and bought a Leica earlier this year and am now constantly adding to the, uh, the, the problem, I would say. Um, and then uh, design and furniture. I collect modern, modern furniture, mostly American, but yeah. I'm pretty addicted to sunglasses too. I like that. That's a good one. You guys should get into that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, thank you to everybody for coming. Thank you to UTA for housing us in this awesome space. And uh, thank you to Spike for joining us Thanks on for having me, guys. Hodinky Radio Live number one. What's that? Hodinky Radio Live number one. Oh, wow. Here. That's very sweet. Well, I'm huge fans of yours, as everyone is here. And I'm just happy to be a part of this. Thank you for having me. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again to Spike, Ben, and James for joining us. This week's episode was recorded live at the UTA Artist Space in Beverly Hills. The episode was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does help. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.